walked in ear. with your pen behind your ear and I was like, oh my God, I work with like a real live pen behind his ear guy. This is so funny. <laughs> you should tell that story. That should be your pantry. You screwed it. You screwed it. <laughs> I, what's wrong with having a pen behind your ear? Who writes anything anymore? I you do. guys, can we, this is the banter that should be on the podcast. Okay, fine. Great. Let's do it. I was going to talk about making gingerbread houses. And yeah. No, stop, stop. Save it. Save it. <laughs> One of the great things about the podcast, the Gap Fest, is that sometimes they are in the middle of talking when the thing turns on, and then you get to like hear they're talking, and then they go, hello and welcome. Hello and welcome to the Advisory Board's Weekly Briefing, Episode 21, Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm your host, Dan Diamond, the editor of The Daily Briefing, writer for Vox and Forbes. And on today's show, we'll discuss the toll of gun violence in America and whether or not it's a healthcare issue. Then we'll talk about the rising cost of pharmaceutical drugs and how it's increasingly emerging as a policy priority. And stick around as usual for our electives, that thing that we've seen or heard or read that we want to share with you too. We're all sitting around the table, my friends, my colleagues, my longtime friends. We've been reminiscing around the first time we all met. On my right, Rivka Friedman, head of the Medical Group Strategy Council and my friend for nine years. Just about, and you still have that pen behind your ear, just like you did the first time I ever met you. <laughs> I like it about as much now as I did the first time I saw it. It's it's very functional. I use the pen behind my ear to write down things on the pad pen. of paper. It's a red pen. I'm an editor. Are you correcting a lot? I, yeah. I correct you on this podcast. That's true. And on my left, my friend of... Nine and a half years. Yeah, may, maybe a bit of an edge. Rob Lazaro, edge me. who heads the Healthcare Advisory Board. Good afternoon. For links on anything that we talk about today, visit advisory.com slash podcast. You can also email us, podcast at advisory.com. Find us on Twitter, weekly underscore briefing. Search for us on iTunes as well. On to topic number one. More than 30,000 people in America per year die from gun violence. Whether horrible public tragedies like last week's shooting in San Bernardino, where 14 people were killed, to people who take their own lives via firearm, which happens on average dozens of times per day. Gun violence is obviously a huge political issue, but Rivka, is this a public health issue too? You know, it's a good question, and I will be honest, I really never thought about gun violence as a public health issue personally, um, but I think that that idea has been gaining steam in part because the political avenue to thinking about trying to control gun deaths seems like a dead end. And so I think people are looking at other ways to frame the challenge of gun violence and, and the issue that it poses, the, the fear that it creates in people um, by thinking about it through the lens of healthcare. And I actually think that there's a fairly strong case for doing that. So Rivka, one of the things that I think about are what are the characteristics of something we would qualify as a public health threat. So I think about things like mortality rates and lifespan and morbidity rates. And it I, seems to me that this would qualify. I agree with you. And uh, full disclosure, I actually tend to think about it more from a utility perspective. So what is the utility of thinking about gun deaths as a public health crisis? Where does that get us? Unless is there a clear rationale from the ground up to thinking about it that way? And I think if you if you think about it from the perspective of what that gets us to think about it that way, you get, you know, maybe you get CDC funding, which I think we've, we've all been talking about for the past week is something that CDC currently does not have. So CDC used to have its hands tied from studying gun deaths at all. And now, even though the regs have been passed to allow them to study it, there is no budget to allow them to study it. So to that point, about 20 years ago, there was a New England Journal study on gun violence, gun death, and, and that motivated the NRA to mobilize and say, 
let's strip out the CDC center. I think it was like a $45 million center on researching gun violence and, and other injuries, like the injury ep- epidemic. That failed. So instead, to your point, Riv, there was a more targeted effort to just stop the CDC from researching gun violence at all. A few years ago, that was relaxed. And now, theoretically, gun violence could be researched. There just aren't any dollars that enable researchers to pursue that. Regardless, the chilling effect is is real here. Researchers don't want to touch gun violence because it can be so politically charged and draw the spotlight, draw the scrutiny from what is one of the most powerful lobbies in America. Right. Albeit representing an opinion that is, I think, objectively in the minority. So a majority of Americans... Am I right about this? No, Ma- support some form of gun control. Exactly. A majority of Americans support some form of gun control. And yet people who are not even, I would say, loosely affiliated with the political scene, i.e. researchers on this issue, are afraid of touching it for political implications. I was shocked to learn how little is being invested in gun violence research right now. Dan, isn't something like $100,000? It's, it's definitely piddling. I mean, the counter argument is, so there's government funding for gun violence research, but there also could be private funding or, you know, Mayor Bloomberg of, or former Mayor Bloomberg of New York has put lots of money into various gun control initiatives, including research. And that's one argument that folks who say the government shouldn't be involved in this, it's it's not a big deal because other groups are funding it. From where I sit, that doesn't seem like it's a strong argument. Circling back to the point that you led with, Riv, think about all of the different things that the government investigates. Think even a year ago, right, when the Ebola epidemic was about to sweep across America and how concerning that was for everyone. And the talk of sequestering physicians who had been abroad just out of fear that Ebola would spread and kill a few people or or even many people. Any given day, hundreds of lives are being touched by gun violence. It is unusual to have such a carve out for one specific uh, potential danger. Right. And you're talking just about, you know, government intervention or the government's role in preventing those kinds of tragedies, uh, whether by illness or by gun violence. I think there's another piece of that, of your point that is relevant here, which is the same way we think about not letting people on planes when they're ill with a contagious disease. There's a case for thinking about, you know, having a gun registry in that vein. So maybe maybe a follow-up question. We, we also seem to be coalescing around the idea that more research here would be a good thing. What would that accomplish? if the CDC was funded to do more investigative work into the causes of gun violence? I think maybe this is aspirational, but more research might help free the issue of gun violence and its effects from the shackles of the political landscape, right? Right now, gun violence is something that seems owned by the NRA, and it is very difficult to have a meaningful conversation about its effects without just falling right into the political black hole. That's right. It's the medicalization of it. It's thinking about how we have made great progress in reducing the stigma of behavioral health and of substance abuse and are able to talk about them as medical conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, Second, hopefully research could figure out the right solution. So what are the policy solutions to be able to reduce the amount of gun violence, to reduce the drivers of these mass shootings? Well, and interestingly, when we talk about the medicalization of other things, I think one of the concerns that we have to think about is whether that stigmatizes them. So uh, one of the wonderful advancements in the world of mental health, behavioral health is that by talking about the medical implications, I think we've been able to reduce some of the stigma associated with those conditions. Is there a concern that if we treat gun violence 
which seems like really a quite big social issue, as a more medical issue, we create some sort of stigma around it. I, I kind of hope we create a stigma <laughs> around it. I mean, gun violence is so negative, not just to the individual, but as, as we've just been talking about, the ripple effects of touching a community. I want to go back to something you said, Rob, which is about the policy solutions that we might need to uncover. I, I think that's the biggest piece here. Without research into what initiatives might work, how effective they are, it's very hard for lawmakers or, or advocates to say this is the path that we need to take. Just think about the ACA, very different regulation, but accountable care organizations were birthed in you know, academia and, and limited research and then eventually became an idea that folks wanted to get behind and roll out nationally. More closely related to gun violence, think about safety regulations around driving. Or, or the workplace. Or in the workplace, or swimming pools, whatever those might be. There's reams of research on how to better protect people there. Yeah. And one way that there have been things like barriers on highways put into place is because of the studies that showed that they worked. You know, Mike Pasca made a fantastic point about this issue on the spiel, which is the, the last part of his podcast, last segment, where he just sort of riffs on an issue. And the one that he did this week on gun control is really worth listening to. But the point he made is that gun control regulations are a lot like seatbelt regulations, which is to say the fact that a seatbelt doesn't save every single person from dying in a car crash doesn't mean that seatbelt regulations aren't a good thing. In other words, they do save some people and they do prevent some accidents from being lethal. So even if they don't work in every case, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't exist. I guess going back to our original question about whether we should treat gun violence as a public health issue, there does seem to be a clear case that treating gun violence as a public health issue will improve access to research, especially for the CDC. Can we talk about the opposite side of the coin here? What are the cases against treating it as a public health issue? One of the strongest arguments back in the 1990s was that the government was being too much of an advocate by stepping in offering research. And we know how politically sensitive the issue of gun control is and, and the invocation of the Second Amendment. So the, the thought, and I'm not sure I agree with this, but the thought was having the government engaged in this way, doing active research, was an inappropriate role for the federal officials to be playing. So put aside the government then. What about the private market. What about the what about industry thinking about this as an issue that is really a public health issue and not something broader? So I think the challenge there is there either has to be some sort of nonprofit with the mission of ending on ending gun violence or a commercial product that could come out of that kind of work to motivate that kind of investment. And and there are nonprofits that are focused on this. I mean every town, which I think mm -hmm. sprung up after Sandy Hook, is a nonprofit that's very focused on on gun violence. But to me it raises the question if enough people think this is a public health issue. Doctors for America, coincidentally, I think a, a week or so ago, petitioned for... The, I think it was the, the same day of the shooting. Yeah, the, the, the morning of the shooting just happened to be petitioning for a, a change and allowing the CDC to go ahead and, and do this research. They have been out in front of this issue for a long time. The former head of Doctors for America, now the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, could not get confirmed because he had spoken out about gun violence being a public health issue. My question is, if, if there is enough consensus that this has healthcare ripple effects, is it incumbent on healthcare leaders to do more and speak out more? I Maybe. Maybe the answer to that is yes. But I think there's another general question that might weigh in on whether healthcare leaders need to pay attention to this, which is not just is 
gun violence a public health issue, but how does it rank in comparison to other public health issues that we know about in terms of some of the data that we've been talking about in terms of its impact on, you know, how many how many lives are lost due to gun violence, but also how many lives are affected. And uh, one of the conversations that we were having earlier, thanks to Rachel, who helped us prep this segment, was, you know, CDC has a lot of priorities. So do many nonprofits that are focused on public health improvement. Is this the thing that they should focus on? Is this the place where their dollars should go? Knowing full well that those dollars could go to a lot of other public health crises. Like, for example, malaria, which is a huge public health crisis across the world. So I I hear you on that. I'm not sure I agree. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be. I'm just saying that one of the things we have to think about when evaluating whether this is a public health issue is whether categorizing it as a public health issue will take attention away from other public health issues that may or may not be more important. But this is one of the most visible ones we keep hearing about in the news. We keep hearing about these tragic events. And and it seems to me like the reaction after each one is something needs to happen and then nothing does. Oh, so, agreed, agreed. So, Dan, I, I liked your mention earlier back to Ebola, where that was also very visible, but there was a lot of action and maybe more action than was necessary for the, the stimulus. Exactly right. And, I, you know, you could make an argument, although I don't have the data to make this argument myself, but that all that attention on Ebola may have been better spent if some of it had gone to Ebola and some of it had gone to other public health crises that don't get as much attention. I think another another example of this phenomenon at play is Komen Foundation, all of the attention that it has generated for breast cancer or the ice bucket challenge and all the attention it generated for ALS. You know, the public um, the public mind is easily influenced by things like social media campaigns, and that doesn't necessarily mean that we're putting our dollars in the exact right places that they need to go. That's such a great point. There was a graphic, I think, on Vox last year that mapped the difference between mm. where dollars were going versus how big those problems actually were. And maybe it's just that we're so inert now to gun violence. Mm-hmm. Like if, if we were aliens and came down on Earth and read this story about 30,000 people in America were killed because of this one thing. You versus- don't have to be an alien. If you're in Australia and you're <laughs> reading this, you're saying, just learn from us. Before we wrap up the segment, one thing I think we'd be remiss not to talk about at all is the connection between focus on behavioral health and mental wellness right now and access to guns and how that complicates a lot of the gun control efforts being discussed right now. It does, and I think it it complicates them on two sides of the coin, right? So at, at least my Facebook feed lately has been full of friends I have who are disability advocates who work for behavioral health support nonprofits and other organizations who would say that Talking about the talking about gun violence as a behavioral health issue or mental health issue is actually really damaging to both goals, right? Both improving behavioral health access and also reducing gun violence. I think there's room for debate there, but just wanted to note that. Well, I, I think the numbers bear that out. So if you ask an average American, there is conflation of mental illness causes gun violence. I, I think like half of Americans see a very strong link. But if you're looking very closely at who's committing gun violence, Various surveys and studies have found it's more like 5% of gun violence is linked to mental illness directly. For the most part, people who are depressed are not necessarily violent and depressed. They're sad and depressed. And obviously, there are different kinds of mental illness which manifest in different ways. But it is not the leading cause here of gun violence in America. Well, especially when most most of our conversation has focused on mass shootings, which, mm-hmm. if I understand the definition correct, Dan, is four or more people being shot in one instance. Also a controversial topic. It, d- depending on how you categorize it, uh, 
that is one category. And, and Mother Jones, I think, has kept a database that says there have been like four mass shootings this year based on the qualification that it's a spree shooter. It's also very depressing to even have to talk about this, yeah. but yeah. Th- there's another category of mass shooting being multiple people injured in a shooting, killed in a shooting that could be anything from at a movie theater to on a playground to drug-related violence. But we should also acknowledge that there is still way too much gun violence that is not connected to mass shootings. Yeah, for sure. Well, one of the things that I'm interested in seeing as this conversation continues to unfold is whether connecting gun violence to terrorism or public health ends up being more successful in advancing the conversation at a national level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, to, to take it full circle, the public health argument seems to me to be winning support in a way that for all of the other focus on mass shootings the past couple of years, that is a point that seems more defensible for folks who are in favor of gun control. Yeah, and hopefully has broader appeal even among folks who aren't necessarily in favor of gun control. Okay, we'll we'll leave it on that very depressing, sober note. And before moving on to our next segment, just a reminder, for links on anything that we talked about today, you can visit advisory.com slash podcast. You can also email us, podcast at advisory.com. Find us on Twitter, weekly underscore briefing, and search for us on iTunes. So topic two, we're recording this on Tuesday, uh, but on Wednesday, the Senate Committee on Aging is scheduled to hold a hearing investigating the rising cost of pharmaceuticals. This follows a series of stories this year about companies like Turing Pharmaceutical, where CEO Martin Shkreli, did I get that name right this time, Rivka? Shkreli. Martin Shkreli decided to hike the price of one drug by more than 5,000% overnight. But there's also been focus on the high cost of treatment for drugs like Sovaldi, a hepatitis C drug that goes for about $85,000 per cure. We spent a lot of time in healthcare this year discussing Sovaldi, Shkreli, but how much of a problem in healthcare is this? Is, is this a lot of scrutiny and even political furor over an issue that's actually relatively small when you think about the priorities for would-be reformers? Well, if you look at the data of what's driving health spending right now and health spending growth, we've talked about that on past episodes, pharmaceutical costs are pretty high on that list right now. So national health spending numbers that came out last year showed that pharma costs went up about 12% year over year in contrast to about 4%, 5% everywhere else throughout the healthcare system. Did it come out last year last month? Did I say last year? So it came out last week, but the numbers are for 2014. Mm. Dan, back when the news about Shkreli and Turing Pharmaceuticals came out, you wrote a piece saying that Martin Shkreli is a hero. And I know you got a lot of uh, negative feedback, <laughs> flack, some of it from me. I thought the I thought your take on it was absurd. I think Martin Shkreli is the opposite of a hero. Having said that, you made a point back then that while I don't think it made your case about Martin Shkreli being a hero, has certainly even meted out, which is that um, the, the news about Shkreli has drawn more attention to this issue among people who might have cared about it, but wouldn't have cared enough to make it news. And so kudos to you on that piece of your point. Oh, I'm, I'm glad that I was heroic in writing about Martin Shkreli. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't go that far, but it is interesting. So interesting that we're talking about Shkreli now because- Shkreli. 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 I still can't actually talk about him. Did I can write him? about him. So last week at the Forbes Healthcare Summit, he was there uh, speaking about his experience in, in pharma and want to roll a clip. You two did not know I had this, but I, I'd like to play it anyway um, on something that he said in response. I, I think first we'll hear a questioner 
followed by Shkreli. 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 <laughs> Shkreli offering his thoughts on what's happened in the past few months. I have two questions for you. The first is, if you could rewind the clock a few months, I wonder if you would do anything differently. And the second is, I'd like to know if you think corporate reputation matters. I probably would have raised the price higher, is, is probably what I would have done. Um, um, Why? I, I think healthcare prices are inelastic. I could have raised it higher and made more profits for our shareholders, um, which is my primary duty. So that was real. I was sitting in the room 20 feet from this guy when he said it was unbelievable and, and horrifying and compelling all at the same time. This guy is a gift. He is a gift to reporters for writing stories. I think he's also a gift to just the politicians and the healthcare industry for keeping this in the news and being unrepentant and almost pulling down the curtain and saying, look, I'm in it for the profit. And this is not a secret that profit is an issue in healthcare. And the fact that you have this tailor-made villain, only heroic because he is saying these things that are weirdly brave in a way and putting attention on an issue that otherwise would not be as much in the well, in the news cycle as it would. So listen, okay. Martin Shkreli runs a publicly traded company. Am I right? Yeah. And every publicly traded company's main priority has to be producing profits for their shareholders because that's how they stay afloat. That's true for every public company. But could you imagine a hospital CEO of an investor-owned right. company saying the exact same thing? I completely agree with you. I agree. The fact that he comes from central casting of villains is very convenient for keeping this issue in the spotlight. But I think that there are probably a lot of pharmaceutical executives who think the same thing they just would never say it for optics purposes. Dan, I'm glad you went to the hospital piece there because one of the things that I've been thinking about is how this story has stuck around so much longer than when hospitals experienced this a few years ago with the bitter pill article. That's such a, I, that's been on the top of my mind too. I was talking to Bob Berenson from Urban Institute this mm -hmm. morning and he made the exact same point as you, Rob, that bitter pill put the spotlight on hospital pricing and maybe, maybe that's where we'd be talking right now if not for all this focus now on drug prices. Like, it has taken the spotlight. The American consumer only has enough attention to focus on one thing, especially in healthcare, and this is now where that scrutiny is falling. Is that a good thing? Is it a good thing that the fact that Shkreli exists has shifted public attention to pharma prices and shifted attention away from hospital prices? Well, I, I don't- It's certainly good for our members, but I'm curious if it's good objectively. Like where we started out, if we look at what's driving health spending right now, it's not hospital prices. That's right. So if we want the solution to the problem, we should be looking at pharmacy right now. I agree. I, I'm going to be the dissenter here. I, I think pharma is important. Don't don't get me wrong. Like if you are one of the patients affected by Shkreli's price hike, and then he said he was going to drop the price hike, but he actually isn't. Like God, that's awful and horrible. But this is still a relatively small corner of healthcare. And when you look at where different market power issues are right now, I'm not really thinking about pharma as much as about health insurers or hospitals where there have been so many mergers in the past couple years, and especially this year, that seems like still the biggest looming issue in healthcare from where I sit. So I agree, and I think the reason it seems like it's looming is because it's complex, it has yet to be sorted out, and it has a lot of strategic implications, especially in our world, right? We all work with hospital health system, medical group executives. But I think to Rob's point, if pharma spending is really a bigger piece of the pie, and importantly, if we go back to the Shkreli, Kate, it, the Shkreli quote, where he says, look, prices are inelastic, and I could charge as much as I want, 
I I want to make a case, and I would love for you two to push back, that hospital executives do not have that same luxury. They do not have the luxury of saying, I'm just going to charge whatever I want, and the American consumer can decide whether or not to consume my services. That's exactly right, because for hospitals, most of their prices are set by the federal exactly. government, with Medicare being the single largest payer. They're negotiating for a minority of their book of business. Dan, and the even when they're negotiating, they're not negotiating with an endless ceiling, right? Uh, they're, they're negotiating within a fairly strict confines. That's right. And Dan, the reason I want to push back with you is what you mentioned before, thinking about health, thinking about the rates that health insurers charge uh, or even hospital rates, there's a lot more regulation there. So think about how health insurers have to go through an annual rate review process. That doesn't happen with pharmaceuticals. You're both right. I mean, Shkreli and, and Daraprim, the drug that got hiked overnight, very few regulations preventing him from doing what he did, going in, finding this drug that essentially had market control and being able to raise it overnight. Savaldi so is somewhat a different story. Like That was an innovative drug that came along, but still not a lot of downward pressure on pharmaceutical prices in the same way that there's this negotiation between hospitals and health insurers. But I think there is some similarity, and you've got these oligopolies, right? Like lots of power in a certain area, which allows you to negotiate things up in a way that might not benefit the consumer as much as the organizations that are enjoying this market dominance. So I think we zoom out, we see one of the central tensions that I think behind the scenes the healthcare universe is grappling with right now. Is it better to have more integration or more competition? Mm -hmm. So when you talk about Turing or Gilead, these are companies that essentially have a monopoly for a certain product. If there's more competition, maybe there would be downward price pressure. Right, but because pharmaceutical companies are fundamentally dealing in researching and bringing to market things that do not exist, the idea of injecting more competition into that market is a lot more complex than for something like hospital services, which for better or for worse are essentially commodities or close to commodities. Well, and the question is if there isn't this big financial incentive behind discovering that next big drug, what's going to encourage that investment exactly. in R&D? So I think we need to walk that fine line between still driving innovation, but not getting gouged as a result of it. Okay, we, we will leave the conversation on that note and go on to our electives, that thing that we are raring to share with you as well. Rivka is typing away on her laptop. Do, yeah, do you no, have your... Up. Yeah, I've got it. Okay. I've got it. What do you have? So I want to just share quickly an article in the Upshot blog from Austin Fract. I'm sure, Dan, you've seen it. You probably wrote it up in the daily briefing and I missed it. I had a bit of a day yesterday. But uh, a great piece called Your New Medical Team, Algorithms and Physicians. And it's just a really smart take on... Uh, a different side of the coin than I usually hear, which is, whoa, that medicine is moving away from people and towards machines and this is so terrible. Actually, I think Austin Freck makes a really strong case that having not just computers, but algorithms play an active role in care delivery is going to improve care overall, right? Because first of all, humans are fallible, we're forgetful. I mean, he, he cites a statistic that one in every 10,000 surgeries we end up leaving a tool in the person being operated on. That's not a good thing. And having a machine right by us could, you know, make us not forget to take the tool out when we're finished with the surgery. But, um, but whether the algorithm is incredibly simple, like a checklist that's something we just run through at the end of every procedure, or something incredibly complex like IBM's Watson, which is now going to participate in healthcare delivery in partnership with a hospital, uh, I think there's a, a really good case that um, machines and algorithms can play an important role in making care higher quality on average, right? More standardized and better. I, I did read that story, and one of the most compelling data points within was that there are more than 750 
150,000 medical studies per year. I actually, as I followed that link, because I I thought 750,000 studies just in 2014, obviously no single person can digest that. I I mean, maybe there are studies that have never even been read by anybody but the people who research them and the journals that publish them. I I think that's not a maybe, that's a definite. There there are studies that have only been accessed, various journals have published this this data, like by eight people, 10 people, 12 people. And not all studies are created equal, but there is a bias towards the studies that are able to command PR right. attention. So, if, if, first of all, I followed that link to try to figure out like what are these studies. It didn't. It didn't actually link to any sort of list that I could track because I was hoping to bring some really arcane study names to share with you all. But you know, even within a particular field, say you're an oncologist, say you study uh, blood cancers. Uh, who knows how many studies have been uh, published in 2014 on advancements in blood cancer that would probably change clinical standards of care for you today? But you don't know about them, so. Computers are a good thing, is I guess what I'm saying. <laughs> which, but, which, which will be good until we're all replaced by exactly, computers on exactly. this podcast. In, a, in any case, worthy of, of reading, it's called Your New Medical Team, Algorithms and Physicians. Rob, what do you have? Well, I want to start with a question for you guys. When you're at a restaurant and the menu has calorie counts, do you read them and factor them into your ordering decisions? I don't really eat at restaurants that have calorie counts on the menus. <laughs> Too snobby for that. I, I, it kind of depends on how many calories I feel like I've burned that day, and then it, mm. I uh, decide whether or not to validate my my exercise with more consumption. So you have a reason to splurge. I think so. I I have actually I have seen them like when I'm at an airport and they're listed, and I I'm almost always just surprised that certain items seem so high in calories. My aha moment with the calorie count on a menu was actually at my mom's birthday dinner last year. We were at a well-known steakhouse locations across the country, a couple here in the DC area. And I went to order my usual New York strip and I saw it had literally three times as many calories as a filet. And I don't think I've ordered New York strip since. Mm. And I've become a filet convert. Anyways, the reason I asked this is because an article that uh, caught my eye last week, it is also from the Upshop blog. So we are on the same page, Riv. This is from Aaron Carroll and it's called The Surprising Failure of Calorie Counts on Menus. And he looked at the research, he's one of our favorite healthcare myth myth busters, and he looked at the research uh, behind whether these calorie counts are actually helpful. And I was sad to learn the answer is no. So in many cases, people actually just ignore having the calorie counts there. Either over time they just gloss over them or tune them out altogether, or they just don't really care. Second, and this one's a little more troubling and one that I've worried about, are they actually accurate? So they may have an average number, but when someone's cooking on that particular day, it could be higher or lower. And one of the things that Aaron pointed out uh, that was most troubling is that the items that are deemed healthiest are often the ones that are most uh, underlisted. So what you end up consuming is even more caloric than, than what's posted. So in conclusion, he said that there's a lot we can do to help people make healthier decisions in restaurants, but policymakers' preferred solution, the calorie count, might not actually be all that helpful. So something to keep in mind as we head into the holiday season and we all try to watch what we eat a little bit. Dan, what do you have to round us out this week? Do you also have something Is it from also the from the Upshot blog, blog yeah. and by the Incidental Economist? <laughs> no, as, as, as much as we love them, I, I'm not going to cite their work. I'm going to cite my own. Uh, so, about Of a, course you are. <laughs> I never do. So a, about a month or so ago, we, we talked about the study on rising mortality rates among middle-aged white Americans. Do you, mm-hmm. do you remember who wrote that study? No. So study got 
a lot of attention for one of the authors, Angus Deaton. He had just won the Nobel Prize, but his co-author, Anne Case, also a Princeton oh, economist yes, and yes, yes, a woman and a woman yes. and his wife was very much buried in the press coverage. And Justin Wolfers, who does write for The Upshot, <laughs> great writer, great economist, pointed out that more often than not, famous female economists are ignored in favor of their male co-authors. And he knows of what he speaks. He's a famous economist, but so is his wife, Betsy Stevenson. And at times, she has been the expert that got uh, deprioritized. Even in, in the um, Anne-Marie Slaughter story, uh, That's right. What, about about how women women can't have it all. Right. So she cited a study that the two of them had written, but listed Justin's name first, even though Betsy was the lead author. Why am I bringing this up? Because that study on white mortality and case was the first listed author, but Angus Deaton was the one who was often mentioned first in press coverage, in the one primarily interviewed, and and Wolfers in the Upshot. <laughs> wrote about how this is not right, you need to give credit to the primary author, and it's very important in academia. And I got some feedback on this because I had written a story that focused on Angus Deaton and, and not Anne Case. So what I decided to do was write a counter to Wolfers and to explain in, in the title of the story why reporters like me ignore famous female economists. And in the case of in the case of the Case Deaton article, one reason Angus Deaton got so much attention was he was the only one doing media. He responded to my questions. I made sure to contact both of them, didn't hear from her, and I know other reporters had the same opportunity, like the, the same thing happened with them. There also is, just anecdotally, somewhat of a gender difference in who chooses to respond to media requests. More often than not, if, if I say, Joe economist and Jane economist, I'd like you to weigh in on this issue. And it's not just economists, it's, it's different experts across the spectrum. I am more likely to get from a female expert, I'm not sure that I know enough here, why don't I point you to someone else, versus the male expert who, and this is just anecdotal, I don't have data on it. I'll give you some data. <laughs> I have some. Speaks, is, is rushing to speak on this. And um, I, I hope my article was balanced, certainly in writing it. It provoked a lot of responses from female economists, so now I know lots of folks that I can reach out to, and I will actually be speaking at the American Economist Association in a month with Justin Wolfers, Catherine Rample from the Washington Post, and Susan Donarski from the University of Michigan on what it's like to ensure gender diversity in the media and with economists. So if you're in San Francisco in a month at that conference, I will be there, and I will be listening acutely to what I can do better. Love it. Well, Dan, the data I have for you is I went a while back to hear Hannah Rosen speak about her book, The End of Men. And uh, I asked her a question about one of the phenomena that she cited about uh, her interviews at Google. And it was about kind of what you alluded to, the psyche of women versus men in applying for jobs. And she said, you know, she had seen it come across a study in her research that was meted out in her conversations with the executives at Google, that when Google uh, executives used to have job descriptions that were very long, that had a, a number of different requirements listed. And what they found was that very few women would apply for those jobs. And their theory that, again, meted out in studies is that women would look at the list and say, oh, I don't have that last one, or I don't have the second to last one, I'm not going to apply. Whereas men would see a list of 15 items, say, yep, I've got two of those, and apply. And it actually changed, at least according to Rosen, it changed the way Google started it changed the way Google approached its hiring process. It started making shorter job descriptions that had only the most essential job uh, requirements listed. 
to, so as to not deter folks who might have been deterred, which in their case skewed female. So there you have it. It's, it's that confidence, competence mm-hmm. uh, d- distinction. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, that's it for today's show. Perspectives from the Upshot blog via the <laughs> weekly briefing. Uh, thanks to our producers today, Nate Smith, Bronson R. Curry, our interns, Ray Woods, and Emma Kellum. If you have feedback or suggestions or an Upshot article that we missed, you can email us at podcastadvisory.com. For links on anything that we talked about, go to advisory.com slash podcast. You can find us on iTunes by searching Weekly Briefing. You probably already know that. And we'll talk with you again next week.